Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm really excited to have Peter Wang, the CEO of Anaconda, here with me today. I want to thank Anaconda for sponsoring this episode and giving Peter and I the opportunity to continue the discussion that we had on Anaconda's Fairness and Bias webinar last month, where we discussed a bunch of issues surrounding algorithmic bias. Our discussion here on DataFem allows us to address some of the questions that we did not get to address at the webinar. Of course, there are always more questions to ask, and you are free to tweet them to Dikayo Data or email them to Dikayo at DikayoData.com, as you know, at any time. But without further ado, I'd like to get us into this exciting episode that I know you will enjoy. Well, hi, Peter. Thank you so much for being on DataFem today. I'm so glad we get to continue our discussion from the Algorithmic Fairness and Bias webinar that we did last month. Something that really stuck out to me was when you said that it's really important for companies to adopt ethical practices, but that doing so is not necessarily profitable. So we can start with you saying a little bit more about that. And then how do we make that trade-off manageable for businesses so that they choose to do the right thing? Yes. Um, yeah, I think it, it goes in, uh, in both those dimensions, right? Um, some cases, you know, I think um, it's just more work a lot of times, right? It's easier to make incremental changes off of your current models. Um, but, you know, one of the things I see in, in uh, pretty commonly is that data science comes in uh, and does a lot of... Um, data fusion, or they, they look at a much broader set of input sources than maybe what the business had been operating from in the past. And in doing so, they discover room to try to build better features um, or an alternative set of features even than the business uh, has traditionally been thinking about. And so in doing that, that introduces both risk uh, and also it might introduce you know a realization that what you're doing before um, was, was really effective, but it's effective precisely because it was ignoring whole tranches of people or because it was making certain kinds of, of uh, correlations that are actually deeply unfortunate. Um, and there's, there's a lot of this kind of, I mean, it, it's sort of in general terms, I would put it that way. Um, if we get into specifics, I guess, um, if you think about the way that um, we look at, well, there's a lot of consumer protected data, right? And there's like in, in terms of lending and things like that, there's certain protected classes um, that you, 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 you can't go and say, well, I'm just not going to lend to people of this color. I'm not going to lend to people of this religion, right? But when you go, go and do the data science, you might discover, oh my gosh, this one data set, this one column that wasn't race or religion or anything, it actually was like strongly correlated with race or religion or something like that, that we're not supposed to use. And, uh, <laughs> and we've been keying off of that as one of our predictors. 
And so when you, when you go and do data science, you might actually uncover some skeletons in the closet. And that's a huge problem, right? Like it's, it's problematic because the company has been doing the wrong thing, but it's problematic like because management might say, oh, yeah, let's not use that model. Let's like not use that analysis. And so that ties into another question that I saw during, the converse, during our, our conversation that we didn't get to, which is might data scientists become um, whistleblowers, right? Might they have to uh, be, inco- might it be more incumbent upon them to be whistleblowers in the future? I think that's absolutely the case. Because what you find when you start doing these very exploratory, undirected, well, I mean, there's always a reason you're looking at data. But when you are doing data exploration, you might uncover some things that are deeply uncover, uh, unsettling about something the business is currently doing. So I just think that um, for this reason, you know, I keep making the point that data scientists need to learn how to play the game of politics within businesses. Um, And data science managers in particular have to get sophisticated very quickly because they're going to have the opportunity to both deliver great wins, uh, in which case they need to build some political uh, mass for themselves, or they might run into some real political uh, hot water as they discover and uncover some of these things in the heart of the business. So that's kind of kind of, you know, the spirit of what I was saying there, that when we do start going and looking at what people have been doing, when we start applying the tools of honest uh, data science, we might really find that there's some skeletons in the closet. Uh, and that might lead a company to be less profitable when they actually go and try to do the, the better uh, sort of the, you know, the more, the more um, fair and unbiased thing. Yeah, I'm really glad that you fleshed that out because it's a lot more complicated than just saying something is going to be less profitable or more profitable. I definitely worry about individual employees at companies being in the position to have to fight against management to be ethical. Yeah, and that, you know, it's hard to talk about that without expanding the scope to then talking and critiquing um the, the way that ca- the structure between the relationship between capital and labor when so when in the space of uh, in, of uh, information or knowledge work, um, there's there's a deeper conversation to be had about that that you know starts to make me sound like a Marxist even though I'm not a Marxist but I think there's some deep critiques to be had about the this nature of employing people to do things um, to find out things and then to essentially force them to make a personal call about do I want to feed my children. Or do I want to continue engaging in this kind of, you know, unjust kind of action? Um, so I think, again, this is one of those areas where data science um, and uh, center of ethics and data science practice, and things like that within businesses, it would be really helpful for them to gain more clout. Um, so then when you do have someone at the SVP or at the executive level who can raise and flag that issue at the executive level um, to say, you know, here, one of my data scientists looking at this thing over here, they uncovered that we've got an issue. We have an ethics issue over here. I think that's actually a really important thing for the industry to, to get into doing. Uh, one thing I thought about, I mean, to your point about people might get fired for, for speaking up, um, I, I have kind of a radical idea, which is I think that actually the, the data science and machine learning practitioners around the world need to form kind of an international union of practice that sets standards and sets... Um, uh, yeah, like a professional association like the AMA and like the um, or the American Medical Association or like the Bar Association for lawyers that sets basic ethical codes of conduct that sets these things in place. And say, if you want to employ anyone in this field, they're all going to adhere to these standards. Um, and so you can't just fire one person to shut them up because the next person you bring in is going to flag the same problem. That is a way for data scientists to actually do engage in ethical practice 
and to defend that ethical practice, not as atomized individuals, but as a labor class. Well, that's a wonderful place to explore. Even somebody on the same questions thread was saying like, can we have some kind of emblem or gold sticker put on visualizations that are created upholding a certain standard, um, ethical and moral standard? So yeah, I mean, speaking of unions and sounding like a Marxist and everything, um, do you think the government will any form of government will have to step in and enforce this? Or do you think that it will be up to businesses and like you said, data scientists within the industry, or will there have to be some, you know, political measures taken officially to make sure that this happens? Um, I think it would be best if the, the community of practice emerged standards themselves, which then over time could be enshrined into law. I think that's the, the best way to do it. I think if you try to do this top down with creating a bunch of laws, honestly, <laughs> uh, not to sound too cynical, but the policymakers themselves, I mean, a lot of them, what, the bunch of like old dudes, right? Like in the Senate that think the internet's a series of tubes. They don't understand how Facebook makes money. Like this is not the people you want to sit around and figure out what is bias <laughs> and accountability mean in machine learning. So um, I think that we do have good exemplars Across our daily lives, you know, what piece of electronics have you bought recently that doesn't have an underwriter's laboratory's emblem stuck on it? You know, hopefully the answer is none. You know, when you look at uh, investors, right, the financial industry sort of quote unquote self-regulate by having different ratings uh, services. Um, every advanced area of practice and technique does essentially emerge things like this. Um, and, and I think that it's not too strange for the, the body of uh, data scientists and statistical practitioners to in the era of, you know, kind of leading up to the era of AI and cybernetics for us to emerge these kinds of standards as well and basically say, this is good practice. This is what good practice looks like. Um, and then as we get into it more, we might realize, okay, well, in certain areas, like if you're actually building weapon systems, you might have to relax that a little bit because you're literally trying to develop something that, you know, goes and tries to kill a person. And that's actually your job as, as gruesome as that sounds, but that is like the job of a weapons engineer. Um, so there's still other things you can do there. Like we might have different grades of practice there, right? But I would, I would imagine that it would be far, far, far better for the practitioners and the researchers and everyone else to, um, to build this out uh, rather than – and then basically serve it up to government to sort of enshrine as policy. That would be far better, I think. Wow, do I miss live events. It's been a while since we data folks have been able to unite in a physical space like we do so enthusiastically at AnacondaCon. Fortunately, Anaconda is the birthplace of Python for data science, and a huge advocate of open source innovation has continued to produce webinar after webinar to engage the data science community during this time. If you haven't yet attended an Anaconda online event, you're missing out. And fortunately, you have the chance to dive in with Anaconda's new monthly webinar series, Own Your Data Science Destiny. Throughout this series, Anaconda's in-house experts will help you take your skills to the next level with free 30-minute sessions full of practical tips and tricks. Each webinar will focus on empowering you with tools and techniques that can help you do your job more effectively. The next event is Performance Tips for Pandas on September 30th for all you Python enthusiasts, followed by Working with Data in the Cloud, scheduled for October 28th. 
I hope you will join me at both of these and you can learn more about and register for this new series at anaconda.com events. In the meantime, we'll get back to our show. A lot of people were asking if businesses themselves should be held responsible or just flat out are they responsible for the errors that happen from unethical AI? Well, if they're not responsible, who is? Would be my question. I mean, and this does get to very simple roots of common law, right? At the end of the day, if there's a harm, the question is, what you know, who's culpable and what's the cure? Uh, very simple, right? Um, we grow up in a world that's a very peaceful modern world here, at least in America, and we just are so used to uh, generally government regulations being fairly ineffective at a lot of things, but then technology, um, businesses sort of hiding behind technology sometimes, businesses uh, minting regulations that limit their exposure, um, all sorts of things like that. But if you really to back up and think about it, why shouldn't the business be responsible for how it wields technology to achieve some end? Uh, I don't know. If business builds a, builds a boat and the boat sinks and people die, are they not accountable for it? That's a good point. And sometimes when we bring it back to a physical world comparison like that, it makes everything more clear. I think when it comes to AI, a lot of businesses can claim plausible deniability because they aren't the actual ones manipulating the data set. Yeah, but it's like, you know, if McDonald's serves you a cup of Coke and you, you get seriously sick and they're like, well, it's not our fault. It's Coca-Cola's fault. And Coca-Cola says, well, it's not our fault. It's like this container manufacturer's fault that it, there was like all this like germs inside the container and we just put our syrup into it. Like at some point, the buck's got to stop somewhere because there was a harm, right? Um, so I think that that like mere conveyance somehow like, oh, we're we're a business. We just put this AI out there. Uh, that we got off the shelf from some, you know, graduate students GitHub. I don't think that's really an answer. <laughs> but I do think the spirit of your question, though, I think there's an interesting aspect of this, which is that in most of the ways that we do use uh, advanced machine learning in the modern day, most of it hits people in pixels on screens. Most of it is virtual. Most of it is not like robotic arms spinning out of control and like whacking people into the wall, right? Most of it is not. Well, we do have instances of Tesla autopilots like doing the wrong thing. Um, so uh, I guess we have some of those instances now where machine learning hits the real world and has material harm in that way. But but a lot of the impact of, of machine learning hits us in virtuality. It leads to data loss or it leads to us, you know, I don't know. It's, it's really things where it's hard to establish harm because it's virtuality. It's pixels on screens. Um, so we don't really have precedent there for like to the level of physical harm. But I think as we see cybernetic systems being deployed more and more at scale and in mass, uh, at some point, the people who wield those technologies are going to ultimately be held accountable. And that will create back pressure for those people to internally have guidance to say, oh, but then we need to actually make sure that we're doing this ML stuff in a legit way. So I think that it will be useful back pressure from that perspective when it hits the real world. Well, speaking of the real world, what a lot of people were asking about in the webinar, and I'm trying to put it into eloquent speech altogether, is how we can successfully create unbiased models when our world is full of societal bias. In other words, does our world have to change first 
or can models really have a hand in changing the world to be a fairer place? I think it is far better for us to build as smooth and as accurate a mirror as possible when we're trying to understand what's happening in the world. And we might not like what we see in that mirror, but at least then it can show us where there are issues. And then we can decide, right? Because right now so much of the machine learning stuff is um, it, uh, it is trying to build models of the exterior world. We don't have a fully closed loop in terms of theory of action. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, we build these models and we don't immediately deploy them out to go and like do X, Y, Z. Usually there's a lot of human decision-making in the middle. And then to actually operationalize the models oftentimes involves like building new infrastructure, changing like where trucks go and things like that, right? So there's a long kind of human in the loop and infrastructure in the loop process to loop these things back around. So I think when we take the models um, and we look at the modeling as a, as a view on what's really happening, that might be ugly. But I think our goal is to polish that mirror as smooth as possible so we get a high fidelity view. Um, and then we can say, well, we believe we don't like what that shows. But we think if we do this other thing, it would then make this correction in, in what we see out here. Or in fact, we might actually go and take a different action to specifically work away, chip away at some uh, unfortunate outcome. So, um, you know, I think about there was a thing I was reading Gosh, it was a few years ago, and I wish I could remember the, the, anything about the article or, or, or even the thing that was being talked about. But there was a firm that was going out, and they were, I think a startup, um, and they were basically looking at making loans to credit-worthy individuals in, um, let's say, more economically challenged areas that were generally underserved by most of the really, really big uh, credit players. Okay, And what they found is actually that... Um, the, the people are a lot more credit worthy than, than those big models showed. Um, and if you're willing to engage with them, you would actually get a much better, much safer portfolio. Now, you have to be smart. You have to, you know, you, it's, you can't just play fast and loose. You do have to actually build real credit models there. But if you were to do that and you were to drill into a lower, like a, a lower level of resolution on the individuals, on the understanding the networks, understanding like what was happening in those neighborhoods, you could actually make more money because you had a higher fidelity, higher resolution, higher grain, um, higher quality, yeah, credit model. So I think it's stuff like that that are, for me, like the hero stories of what we can do with good data science, right? Because what you do there is you show, hey, you can make more money by actually serving people better with a higher fidelity model. And if you do enough of that kind of thing, the bigger players will pay attention and they will reform their models. And they'll say, well, whoa, what do we miss over here? right? Because they didn't pay attention to it because they didn't really think that that was worth paying attention to, which is unfortunate, but that's just the reality of the world. So I think this is the way that we can use um, data science, if, we will, if you will, to like bend the arc of justice, right? Uh, to use the famous quote. Um, I don't think we should uh, try to elide or cover up the fact that oftentimes a good, a really good mirror shows a really ugly world. I think in fact, we need to separate those concerns from each other, from building the mirror to understanding the world that the mirror shows. That's very beautifully said. <laughs> very, very poignant way to, to say that. Um, definitely hits me at the core and makes me optimistic, you know, that there really, there really is a way that scientists can convince people that, you know, this is worth paying attention to. Um, 
And then, you know, once they pay attention, and this is, again, building off somebody's question from following the webinar, um, once they pay attention, there's still kind of a big leap as to, okay, we finally get it supported. What do we do about it, though? Um, and I'm wondering, since you mentioned the unions for data science um, practitioners, what would it be like to have some kind of agreement or even like model or software that people could test for ethics easily instead of coming up with it themselves, like coming up with a way to test and everybody's testing in a different way? Um, like maybe now's the time to kind of before people have really all caught on and are desperate for a solution, like maybe it's a good time to develop something where people could test for bias really easily and not be responsible for coming up with the ways to do so. Yeah. Um, I think because this is an emerging practice area, uh, we have to sort of just be, this is the pragmatist in me speaking, not the idealist. I think we just have to make peace with the fact that it will be a process that the industry, uh, it will take time for us to build best practices um, now, the best way to to accelerate the convergence of that sort of thing um, is to engage with each other in these conversations, is to share our learnings uh, for those who have a bit of a platform, let's say, in the space like um, like, you know, you or I, uh, for us to to, uh, you know, emphasize that this is an important thing. And, and uh, it is a network communication emergent sort of phenomenon that will then eventually, I think, settle out into some best practices. Uh, we might be able to generalize learnings across different fields. Um that you know, I, I still think we're very much in a stage of forming and becoming as a as an industry. So uh, I, I, you know, we just have to do knowledge sharing, kind of crowdsourcing right now. But yes, in time, the goal would be to make it so that you know every junior data scientist doesn't have to invent their own way of of like you know applying all these different kind of ethical frameworks. I think that it would be great if they just had some 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 best practices distilled for them to to think about. It reminds me of like being in high school, and you would have like. I, I forgot the name of the site, but it was something that you put your paper through to like check if it was plagiarized, you know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. what was that? It was like teachers would put it either. Well, you would have, I was already in the, I was out of high school by the time that kind of technology came around. Yeah. I, it, well, it was, it was one of those things. I think we had it in college too, but it was one of those things where either the teacher would do it or you would do it. And then you would like have to print out some kind of verification. Um, and it was like, you know, it was something like fair paper. Like I have no, I have no recollection of what the name right. was, but it does remind me right. of that because it was just something that you easily did to like, you know, prove that you weren't cutting and pasting from other sites for your paper, you know, cause at that time, like now I, I don't, I guess people kind of know how to bypass an algorithms, figuring out that you cut, cut and paste, like everybody cuts and paste, but then like you switch around the languages, then you end up like rewriting, whatever. But um, I feel like at that time, it was really scary for professors and teachers because the internet was newer and people were just cutting and pasting and there was no way to regulate it. So that's why it kind of reminds me of that, that we're in this more advanced stage now, but the problem is still the same. Because, I mean, yeah. there is so much power that we have um, in AI, and especially with, you know, being able to self-teach, that's a lot of power. Um, 
And by self-teach, I also mean like the webinars that practitioners can attend with Anaconda or other players. You know, there's so many ways to learn just on your own time that I guess that's why there seems to there seems to be a need for more regulations but at the same time i feel like a lot of individual practitioners themselves are really are really um committed to being ethical and want to learn about this stuff too i don't know if people do this at all because uh, i am not actually a data science practitioner we do do some data science internally at, at anaconda and obviously we are connected to a lot of data scientists and a lot of data science frameworks but um I don't know if the state of practice is such that people will, you know, people try to find, you know, they'll do um, simple things like reserving part of the data, part of a sample set for testing and you have, you know, your training data versus test data. That's one-on-one stuff. Everyone does it. If you were to create uh, biased uh, test data sets and pass them through a model to see if the model got lift, predicting off of things that it's not supposed to use, right? That's one way to sort of see, it's almost like an impulse response function on the on the the machine learning model those are the kinds of things that would be interesting to see uh how much of a lift it got on the biased data set the biased reserved data set versus a uh, truly random subsample that's something i would try to do in my practice if i were very concerned about this sort of thing i think like in school like in academia is actually a really good place to play with these types of things and i know i've said this before to you but data science is such a beautiful like merging of the academic world and industry because industry, you know, it's going to be hard to get them to focus on anything other than fast results and money because, you know, we need that um, to move forward, to fix the economy. All of the, all of the things we need, you know, do come from industry in that way. But I feel like academia, like that's a place where you can question more and experiment with um, kind of these trade-offs that come when you're, trying to come up with a solution to make models more ethical. I absolutely, I think that's, that's right. What's, what's interesting is that, um, you know, there's been this kind of sloshing back and forth around the term data science and like did industry hijack a term and like, isn't all science data science or whatever. What's interesting is that the techniques and uh, approaches, tools in machine learning have come back from industry to, uh, transform the various academic pure research areas, right? Across the sciences, across, I mean, not just sciences, but just overall everywhere. Um, obviously, the sheer amount of interaction data we have now with everyone being so online uh, leads to a lot of advances in behavioral studies, right? Um, and then the kinds of policy data we can get uh, when we have this, the sheer volume of mobility and consumer spending data and all these other kinds of things. It's a really, um, it's an exciting time because we do see uh, this data transformation driving changes, I think, in research and academia, as as well as driving changes in industry. And all these folks can learn from each other. Now, one, one way that this gets more complicated in academia, see, in industry, you're right, it's about profitability. But there's also the whole business is sort of oriented towards like, here's our business, here's our mission, here's how we're going to make money. And everyone's sort of aligned on that. In academia, um, there tends to be this uh, subject matter siloization and everyone talks about multidisciplinary and they'll form centers and they'll do all these like big things around it. But at the end of the day, it's still very departmentally siloed. Right. So I think uh, an area that would be an area of focus for academia to move forward on really adopting the promise of data science is to encourage more 
um, hybridization or, or interdisciplinary work. Because uh, I can guarantee you that if you bring some machine learning experts from the computer uh, science uh, group uh, in combination with statistics experts, in combination with some like pure science people, they could probably all do some really cool things together that the individual groups by themselves would not have even thought of to do, right? So I do hope that data science, because the tooling is shared, because some of the languages are shared, you know, a lot of people are using the same languages, Python and R, for doing these things. Um, I'm actually hoping that leads to some really cool new uh, areas of research that are hybrid and multidisciplinary in nature. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for all of your insights and for being such a change maker in the space that's committed to these ideals of fairness. I know that anybody listening to this probably has tons of thoughts and questions that you may want to share with us on Twitter at Data or the Anaconda channel is a great place to interact. And Peter himself is also active on Twitter. His Twitter name is at P Wang. Also, don't forget to sign up for the September 30th and October 28th webinars that I mentioned as part of Anaconda's new series, Own Your Data Science Destiny. You can register and find more information about these free events at anaconda.com slash events. And for those of you looking to learn more about and support the Data Femme podcast, you can find everything at decayodata.com slash datafemme. And if you want to support in a meaningful way that will give you perks and access into the data science industry, you can become a patron on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash datafemme. There's a lot of good, good, goodies waiting for you on there.